imagery is not always a kind thing to the soul. Think about it, what could ever accurately reflect the soul anyway? Keeping up appearances, perceptions, to show people who you are, who we are, too often becomes a source of deception instead. In the process, what is and what is not real gets confused, lost, and blended in ways that can create the strangest of actions. Aside from positive or negative campaigning, consider the way our nation receives the example of the mental, spiritual, and physical help modeled by the presidential candidates. As we approach the elections, the images of these folks will be even more carefully crafted and scripted than they were before, making it difficult to get to know them if all we watch or listen to are the sound bites and the commercials. And even if we do the work to research these folks more carefully, more intently, it's still hard to tell fact from fiction. Now, my comments today flow from the fringes of our gospel reading about Mark and are centered about rest and prayer and how both are presented as a model or as a witness, if you prefer. While prayer in this campaign, getting back to the presidential campaign, seems to be more of a tagline, you hear it all the time, God bless you, God bless America, makes you feel like everybody just sneezed individually or as a nation. It's a tagline that is generally accepted and being either a good or a thing without any value. However, the image of rest produces an extreme response in the opposite direction, and play, even worse. You may remember the kerfuffle that candidate Romney experienced over being seen jet skiing with his wife. Not a bad thing by any means, but considered a bad thing for a presidential candidate when the great majority of the country is under economic duress. It's bad imagery. Or remember the beer party in the Rose Garden, the golf games, and such of the president. These days, even the president is being cautious, mindful of the images and their potential impact. He canceled his annual vacation to Martha's Vineyard. Instead, he delivered a speech that forced him to address the dismal news of less than 80,000 new jobs being created in June rather than sitting somewhere in Martha's Vineyard. What's real, what's not? Please one side, anger the other. Where are we supposed to go with our thinking, let alone our voting? But really, when did family time or rest within the budget that you can afford become a bad thing? When did it become something that came to mean that you were out of touch, a zealot, or just plain lazy? Now, it most likely has to do, at least in part, with Americans wanting a working president, with few Americans really having any idea of what it is the president's job entails. 
And add to that a sense of resentment by the many who have to work day in and day out, watching others who seem, perception, to have it all. And that somehow they are better than they are. And they seem to have no idea in living this life what others are going through. And it seems to be a fairly accurate guess that we don't want a president who appears to be having too much fun, especially if we are having little fun. In fact, I think that that is where the place of anger in these campaigns has found some of its footing. How can they be enjoying themselves when we are so miserable? Or is it jealousy and greed? using the outsides of people and forgetting their insides. In the process, we, who practice such things, become superficial, and we get caught up in the anger and the polarization and the nihilism, the sense that there is no hope and that, well, everything is soon just going to be shot to hell. Whatever it may be, it is unfair to accept, expect presidents, presidential candidates, or any one of us to be a working machine, living on the surface only, discounting time for everything, looking for everything now, giving up or trading down some of the future benefits of consistent, steady effort. And look, who doesn't want to run sometimes? Who doesn't want to paint a nice rosy picture sometimes? The struggles and the challenges are real and they are daunting. The shooting in the theater in Colorado is real and yes, somehow incrementally fostered by our society's anger and divisions. We are all in some way responsible and accountable when something like this happens. Just as we are responsible and accountable for marginalization and oppression and discrimination when we can do something about it, and we always can, or so I think. And we do have struggles, and many of us do work more than one job to make ends meet, including the work to find a job or just to get through another day. But even so, does that mean that we don't pray or rest or even play? Is there any situation or condition that means we don't rest, meditate, pray? You know, I remember thinking as a kid that I had to be perfect before I could pray. That I had to work hard to get somewhere where I could be good enough to pray. And as for rest, it always seemed that as a kid, I had to do more or better. More in work around the home, or better in school, in my grades. So with all of this and much more in mind, the question for me today from these fringes of Mark's gospel is, am I a prayer? Am I someone who rests, stops, prays, meditates, suspends with practice the noise around me? Do I drop below the surface? enter into the space that produces no products or calculable outcomes. But that space that feeds me and guides me 
in who I really am in relation to the God I understand. Oh, I can't stop now. There's just too much to do. Oh, I don't have time to pray right now. Maybe later. I'm going to be late. Oh my God, this is silly. I have too much on my mind. I am too worried to pray. And I'm too anxious to pray right now. Not now, not now. Yet Paul in Philippians chapter 4 verse 6 says this. Do not be anxious about anything. Instead, tell your requests to God in your every prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Pause. Rest. Pray. Listen. Be guided. Be thankful. In today's reading of Mark, the passage is a familiar one about the feeding of the 5,000. It is, in fact, where our offertory response comes from. That passage is so familiar that it overshadows the parts before and after. And just before this, the disciples return from going out into the villages and the communities and spreading the good news. Returning, they tell Jesus, quote, all they had done and taught, unquote. They had been working, cold calling in sales terms, if you will, entering into places not always friendly, not always ready to listen, and they had achieved some wondrous things. And Jesus' first response, according to Mark, was a great job. It was compassion for how hard they had worked and how faithful they were, and that those who were exuberant were also exhausted. And Jesus says, come. Come away to a deserted place all by yourselves, away from the crowds, and rest a while. Take a break. You deserve it. You need it. There's more to do, but first, eat, rest, pray. And still the crowds pursued them. So much so that by the time Jesus and the disciples got to the other side of the lake, the crowds had rushed there to be with them and in their presence. And Jesus had compassion on the lost souls, as he referred to them. And he taught them. And then he fed them. And in the end, collected more food than they had started with. For the generosity of those present began to flow. And as we say... And there was abundance for all. And when they had finished, Jesus, Mark tells us, immediately made his disciples get into the boat and go to the other side to Bethsaida to rest. While he remained with the crowds to hold them, to teach them a bit more so they could get away. There is an expression in 12-step meetings that hinges on the word halt. It means that if you're starting to feel anxious, nervous, troubled, or tempted to do something you don't want to do, stop. Halt. Get away from the situation for a minute or two and think about whether you are H, hungry, A, angry, L, lonely, T, tired. Hungry, angry, lonely, tired. Because one or more of those conditions can change your thinking and behavior, just as they can impair your health, your well-being, your interaction with others, your joy. And it seems that Jesus knew this and that it was part of his teachings. In fact, much of his teachings, if you think about it, intersect and interconnect 
with each of these time and time again. Slow down. Don't be angry. Here's how you deal with anger. You are never alone. Rest. Be guided. Be with others. Pray. Have compassion. Above all, Jesus emphasized the personal aspect of prayer. The personal aspect of prayer with God. So much so that he referred to God in his prayer as Abba, Father. And he taught this to us. When you pray, don't pray in fancy public ways for everyone to see. Pray behind closed doors to God. Do not be like the hypocrites because they love to pray while standing in synagogues and on street corners so that people can see them. Truly, I say to you, they already have their reward and their acclamation and attention. But whenever you pray, go to your room, close the door, and pray to your God in secret. And God, who sees all in secret, will reward you. In other words, however you pray, however your prayer develops, changes, grows, or even forms into moments and times of just silence, it's just fine. In other words, public worship such as this brings us together and is important just as the disciples came together and rested and prayed together. But so too important is the quiet place between you and God, where you, we, can be heard and listen and be guided, refreshed, reconnected, and embraced by God's love. No showcases here, no carefully crafted images to spin opinion or perception, just real, deep, uncertain, rest and prayer, prayer and rest. There will be, I promise, there will be plenty to do and to have done when prayer and resting are finished. And the plenty to do and have done will be better once we have rested and been filled with prayer. Simply, be a prayer, be a prayer, and life will become ever nearer to being a prayer. Amen.